Hello everyone, welcome to a fresh episode of Security Headlines. Today we got a really nice episode ahead of us, featuring one of the kings of privilege escalation mitigations. We're talking the unprivileged handbox bubble wrap. My name is Philip, I'm your host, and today I got Alex with me, one of the brains behind bubble wrap. How are you doing today, Alex? Thank you, I'm feeling good, I'm feeling good. So what is bubble, bubble wrap? So bubble wrap so it originated from another project I'm working on called Flatpak. Where, where it was originally like the, the internal helper to set up all the namespacing and C groups and, and you know, everything that re was required for, for sandboxing apps on the desktop. But, you know, since it was generally a useful tool, I, we extracted it and, and made like a external tool that anyone can use. And it's basically, if, if you look at the code, it's not a lot of code. It's mostly a nice interface for accessing the kernel features for for namespaces and, and, and various sandboxing technologies. So you, you can use it from the command line without having to be like an expert in how all the internal syscalls works. That's and it, foc it focuses on, on privileged user interfaces. So like Shroot. Uh, yeah, so Shroot, and you could say it's a Shroot on steroids, although it mm -hmm. works slightly different. Uh, Shroot requires you to be root because uh, in general, playing with namespaces and playing with how the file system looks is a security issue because you can fool other processes. Absolutely. But fundamentally, uh, username, unprivileged user namespaces depends on this process feature called PR no new privs or something, which basically is a flag that you turn on and then disables all kinds of set UID or set cap or any, any kind of features that could raise your privileges are disabled. And that's what makes it safe. Oh, what attracted you to the project? Why did you want to start working on that? Was it to have uh, applications running in different na namespaces and the sandbox part no, of it? Or? It, it? It all originated from, from uh, my work on Flatpak, which in turn, I mean, I, I've been doing multiple desktop container system called Glick and, and Glick2 previously. And I was generally interested in, in application bundling Oh. So I wasn't necessarily interested in, in initially in, in sandboxing as a security feature, but more like a way to make universal binaries for Linux, right? Things that are portable, things you can build once and run on any, any distribution. I mean, I've been working in the, in the Linux space for over 20 years. Oh. Uh, I think I'm thinking coming up at my 20th year at Red Hat. So I've seen all the pain that goes into trying to maintain Porting stuff. Porting and stuff, uh, yeah. So, so having applications that work on many distributions is just something I've long wanted. And, and namespaces and sandboxing was initially just, you know, a way to get there. Although, you know, as time passes, security in general becomes more and more important. Absolutely. So sandboxing, even for desktop apps, sandboxing becomes important, right? You can protect your host or your other apps from your games or your you know, non-important apps that you want to install. So 20 years, quite a, a long time. How did you fall into the rabbit hole of Linux and programming and what got oh. you interested in that? I mean, I, I've always been programming since, you know, way, way back when, my Commodore 64. So in like 94 or something, I started using Linux at university or school on high school. And then it, I, I studied computer science, and there was a lot of, a lot of Unix stuff. Uh, although in school, it was mostly 
Solaris and, and other commercial Unixes. But I always had a Linux machine at home. And then I, after I graduated, I worked in a Linux consulting firm. And then I ended up doing lots of like Mozilla porting to embedded stuff. And that caught attention from some people at Red Hat. And like since 2000 or something, I work at Red Hat in the desktop group doing GNOME and all kinds of similar stuff. Awesome. Was there any like light bulb moment where you realized like, wow, this Unix and Linux stuff is really amazing. And I want to spend a lot of time on that. I don't know. I think I saw Unix, uh, Linux internally initially just as a way to get access to what I had at school, which was Solaris. Okay. So we were using Linux or we were using commercial Linux at school and like, oh, there's a free way to get this running at home. Let's try this thing. And, you know, being a programmer, Unix is like a very, a very nice environment. Yeah, absolutely. And also, you... I think I, I think what attracted me to working with Linux is that you can be, you know, some guy in the suburb of Stockholm, and actually work on the core kernel stuff or like the core plumbing of the system. Whereas if you would, you know, be interested in working on Windows, you have to be hired by Microsoft and end up in the right group and do all sorts of Yeah, it's, it's local like, independent like that. Yeah, and, and you can just get access to all this core stuff. And if, you, if you're good enough, you can just do it without having to jump through any hoops or work at a specific company or whatever. Yeah, so that's, that's, just... that's one of the many features. Have you gone deeper and done some kernel development for Linux or? Yeah, I mean, not, not any deep. Doing uh, container work, I also did some work on Docker, like the Docker backends for file systems and stuff. Hmm. Anything that touches these things, you have to constantly cross-check with the kernel sources because there's just, there's just no documentation that makes any sense at this level. You have to read the code and see what it does. I mean, there are obviously some, you know, lightheaded docs, but if something is weird is happening, you have to read the code and see what, what it does. So, so uh, there's always like, a close, whenever you work at this low level, there's always a closeness to the kernel, but I've never done a lot of kernel work. I, I wrote some drivers way back from my, like 20 years ago or something, I guess. I wrote the temperature sensor for my motherboard because it was overheating. So I, Okay. Proof driver for the sensor or something. Nice. So how has it been to see Flatpak grow and how has the kind of user adoption been trying to convince people to like port their apps to running Flatpak? It's tricky. I mean, we don't have, obviously we're at some level competing with Snap and Ubuntu and we don't have the same kind of PR people. It's just basically me doing this work and a couple of other people helping out and, and we don't have, you know, the ability to fly all the developers to New York and have a big thing where you yeah, have to snap your app. So, and you know, I work for Red Hat. It's a, it's a huge company, but the desktop side isn't necessarily super important to us. I mean, it's not unimportant, but it's it's not what drives our revenue. So it, it doesn't get that kind of attention. But on the other hand, I think fundamentally Flatpak is a really good design and it's starting to show that it's picking up adoption. And, you know, we have, various graphs of how many people are downloading stuff, how many new apps we are, we have on Flathub and, and they're all pointing upwards all the time, which is good. So we're getting there slowly. I mean, also a lot of people have issues with all these newfangled things. They just want to use their dev packages or whatever. And it's, it's, it's a, it's a long road ahead of us. Do you think like Flatpak will expand to like non X graphical 
expand to like running uh, CLI tools as well? It's, it's certainly possible to package CLI tools using Flatpak. It's just somewhat suboptimal because it's not like the target audience for, for the design. So if you install it, you have to like run it by typing Flatpak run some large app ID. So you, you have to set up, actually it comes with, it comes with uh, automatic wrapper scripts that are somewhat, they're somewhat easier to run, but they are not in the path by default because there's, that's having installed app expose things ahead of their system paths in, in, in the path is, is, you know, security sensitive. Well, you export an ls command and suddenly you yeah. everyone runs your thing instead right so you have to do some manual work set up an alias or a shell wrapper or something but it's certainly possible to do command line stuff with Flatpak, although not necessarily goal of the project to make it super easy server side stuff though no i don't think that that, that much better handled by you know, clustering software kubernetes docker podman those kinds of things yeah so bubble wrap is, is great for, like you say, for security, for, for mitigating that other applications access, other applications, user spaces and stuff like that. How is the security auditing on bubble wrap and Flatpak? And I saw that you actually found a bug and filed the CVE for, uh, for bubble wrap. Yeah, there, there, there has been some CVEs. None of them are catastrophic, but there certainly are have been issues like uh, like I said all these kernel interfaces are somewhat tricky and all the edge cases and it's easy to get something wrong I mean there was like one of the CVs was like if you send the right commands to the terminal you can make that echo something and then the the calling shell script might if it was interactive, it might like read that output oh, okay. do it in the buffer or something. These oh. are like really tricky oh, yeah. things. It's not like an obvious bug. It's just some weird thing that you could do. So we have the Red Hat team has did an initial pass at the security and, and basically every time some distro packages it, their security team do like analysis of it. So also code wise, it's coded in a very defensive style and tries to exit as soon as there's anything weird and, and just, you know, generally, generally it tries to be a very minimal, do nothing fancy. I think, I think essentially like in the way it works is that you, you create these command lines that can be rather large that sets up yeah. everything. So CH root is, is more like outside of, of CH root, I set up an entire system that I want to, that we want to start something inside. Whereas in bubble wrap, it's the opposite. When you, when you start bubble wrap with nothing, you only get an empty root file system, which is a temp FS. And then you have to add stuff into it to make it work. So it, it, it turns out that you need to add a bunch of stuff. So often you need some kind of wrapper around bubble wrap that does the, the generation of these command lines. Oh, yeah. So they can be rather large. Like Flatback has this code to generate this huge depending on all the features and whatnot. But that's kind of a decision that was made to make the core of bubble wrap really simple. It just looks at all the apps in order and runs them. So, so that helps too. Like the, the design is made to be very linear and as much as it can be because the kernel stuff is sometimes a bit hairy, but 
supposed to be easy and, and, and easy to review, easy to read. Don't yeah. get into any weird state where things can go wrong. It's just if, if there's anything that errors, that we use to exit. So it's actually somewhat important because bubble wrap primarily primary use case is to run on, on unprivileged user namespaces. But there is also an optional way you can run it. If your system doesn't support privileged namespaces, you can run it with a security root and then and it will use root permissions to do all the same things and then switch back to your user when everything is set up. And, oh. and actually in terms of security, one can argue that this is maybe safer than exposing the full use, unprivileged user namespace in your distro. I mean, certain people think that there are just too many kernel interfaces and we can't be sure that they're all like namespace aware. So if you have full access to everything, it's possible that some, you know, weird feature in the kernel interacts badly with the namespaces and, and you can use it to escalate or something. Whereas if you use a set UID bubble wrap, assuming there isn't any bugs in bubble wrap, you can only set up these trivial things. You can't like access the weird features that the kernel allows, only the features that we expose them. So it should be safe, but you know, if there, if there's a buffer overrun in, in a set UID app, that's yeah. very critical. So, so it, it is important if you run the set UID version to make sure we are, you know, at least don't have bugs of the kind that let you exploit the system. Of course, these days, most distros enable unprivileged user namespaces. I think Debian might still by default disable it. But for sure, Fedora and Ubuntu allow it by default. And I think I think it's an option, like a kernel option in, in Debian these days. Okay. I mean, because user namespaces, it, be. yeah. it, it has had a bunch of CDs. Yeah. Not not in a while, but you know, initially there was a bunch of them, as all sorts of code got suddenly exposed to this namespace idea that you know, PID or a UID is not necessarily the same depending on what who's who the caller is or something yeah so has there been any special uh, specific app that has been very hard to port to uh, to run on their flat hub the flat pack and um not not the hardest part are every is everything that that does its own use of namespaces oh. like for chrome with the it uses uh, or can use uh, user namespaces for its own sandboxing. And that's not necessarily compatible with the way we set up things. I think the current Chrome packages kind of disable per tab sandboxing, or at least, you know, do it in a way that isn't as, it, it doesn't use namespaces, it's, so it's less, uh, less isolated. But we have work ongoing to kind of replace that with our own calls to Flatpak portal to allow creating the sub sandboxes ourselves so that we can tr control that they're safe. Oh, recursive, right. sam recursive sandboxes isn't necessarily uh, unsafe by itself, but in the context, context of Flatpak, it can sometimes confuse the outer, like the host tries to, the host basically relies on the child not being able to modify its view of the file system for certain security sensitive operations. So we can't just allow the child to do whatever he wants. 
No, of course not. It's basically a similar problem to the initial shoot problem, right? Where, where if you shoot something, you can fool a set UID app. Yeah. Like you can fool uh, sudo to read the wrong config file or something. So it's a similar issue there that's causing us not to be able to do recursive sandboxing. So Flathub, that uh, is the goal to kind of make Flatpak into like a, almost like a packet manager and have applications uploaded to Flathub or? Well, I mean, the, the, the goal is obviously that everything should be on Flathub and the, the furthermore that the apps on Flathub should be maintained by their upstream author. Right, okay. it's not a it's not a distro where we package the world, and then forget to update it, and something. It is, it's more like a place where the the original author of an app can reach the entire Linux desktop user target base. The distribution. Uh, yes, yeah, so, so so it's. Yeah. I mean, obviously, we have to get somewhere, so we package a bunch of stuff ourselves. But as soon as as any like upstream wants to take over that we're glad for that because that's that's the end goal that they are aware of packaging and do it themselves you know that that way we we can guarantee that whenever there's a new release we update it and if there are issues with the, the with the package on flathub it is the same thing that the developers are working on i mean in, in distros it's almost always the case that whatever version of your app is in the distro isn't the latest one. So people file bugs against the original project and they were fixed like two years ago, but the it's version of the distro is, is, yeah. is, is or, or just the distro is old and they don't update like in Debian, they don't really update anything unless you're using the unstable release. Basically the package yeah. version stayed the same for four years. So yeah, that's, uh, you get all these duplicated reports for bugs that were fixed years ago, and that's not a lot of fun for for a app maintainer. No. Yeah. But you know, on the other hand, the core feature of Flatpak is that we don't treat any particular repository as more important than any other. Like, if you want to set up your own repository, you're free to do that, and you know, you might have one for your company internal apps or or, you know, a company selling or shipping an app might not want it on Flathub, but instead have their own thing. And that's really important to me too, because I don't want to tie the infrastructure to any particular act. No, no, that's centralizing it is, uh, is bad, I think. How has yeah. that been, uh, the, the, the corporate adoption? What, what are the, the companies saying about Flathub? Are they excited to have their app being, being on Flathub or...? Mm, not generally. We typically get like takedown notices. Oh, I see you're shipping our thing, and please remove oh. it. And we're like, we're just shipping whatever you're shipping. So, I haven't seen a lot of people interested in. There were some. There was like this Finnish company doing a GPU testing tool that just well, it's free, but it's proprietary. So they put that on oh, that hub. So it's like a performance testing for your GPU, which was kind of cool. But there's not been a super large adoption of company stuff. Like we, we do have packages of Spotify and Skype and all these things, but they're generally done by us. Although they're like, they're just pointing at the latest release from upstream. 
is, is repackaging the binaries basically. So they should be just should be fine, but it, but it's not driven by the components themselves. Firefox now does uh, release to Flathub directly, so they do their own builds and just push it to our servers. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, that that was a long time in the making, but it's finally happening, or it happened a couple of months ago, I think. Nice. Yeah, that that is nice. Yeah, we have a quite flexible setup where. We have a, obviously a build system for all our stuff, but you can, we can also hand out like subsets permissions to push directly into repositories. So you can push, you can like register an app identifier and get access to push that particular app whenever you want. So that's, that's kind of nice. So there should, it should be anytime there's like an official Firefox update that it should be on flat hub basically the same day, which is good. So, so for all the, I know we have some package maintainers as listeners. So for all, all those people that kind of want to get their app up on FlatHub, how do they do that? Um, well, first you have to build it using the way Flatpak builds stuff. So th there's a tool called Flatpak Builder where you create a JSON or a YAML file that describes how you build your app. Okay. And then you have to make sure your app builds and works. And then you, and then you can go to the Flathub organization on GitHub and just file a pull request against the Flathub component, I think. Oh, there, there's, a, there's a guy. It, there's a guy there that lists. Right? But basically, you create a pull request and people review it and then it gets merged into its own uh, Git repository for that particular app. And then you just get rights, rights to that repository. And anytime you push something, it will out of, get out of built. And there's all sorts of integration with the build system. So you make a pull request, it will do a oh. test build and report whether it's failed or not. And you can, it, it puts out a link to a temporary repository. So you could test your app before pushing it or before merging that pull request and so it's it's if you're used to working with github it's pretty easy oh yeah that's awesome is there any new uh, cool features that you're currently working on with flatback that you want to um get up and running i mean I, i'm actually looking at the we i did a 1.8 release before summer vacation and i'm kind of just back so i haven't really got into the swing of things but I did some planning and I think feature wise, it's not a lot. I want to look at C groups V2 because the, the old C groups APIs were kind of not very useful for unprivileged use. But these days, I don't know, at least Fedora ships by default C groups V2. And it is, I think possible to do more stuff unprivileged. So, I mean, we, we can't really rely on that because we have to work on all distros, even older distros. But we could optionally maybe do more, uh, more C groups limitations, like limit how much RAM an app can use and limit the IO rate and things like that. Uh, that's more of a research thing. I have to look into what we, what we can do. But other than that, I think, the, the most important thing to work on right now is more of a scalability issue with a repository because things are getting large and, and then tends to get slower as things get larger and we have to do some optimizations and on the network and the infrastructure side and how to make 
basically how to make metadata smaller so that we upgrades aren't as large. Oh. I mean, metadata upgrades. What distro are you using to uh, develop Flatpak? Are you um, running Red Hat yeah, or? Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm a hardcore Fedora user since forever. So oh. that, that's my. To go to system. Yeah. Obviously being a Red Hat developer, I've been working on Red Hat stuff for 20 years. So I'm so used to it. That's a natural thing for me. I mean, obviously I have VMs with Ubuntu and stuff because I have to do packaging work for Ubuntu. And, and we do some of our CI on Ubuntu too to ensure that it builds on various various distros. But for my for my work, it's mainly Fedora. How is this privately? Are you also running Fedora for your yeah uh, private? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's Fedora all over. That's nice. Yeah, I mean, I like it. It's very much what I'm used to, though. But but I think it strikes a pretty good compromise in terms of updates and stability and. If I look back over time, sometimes it was more stable and sometimes it was less stable, but the last couple of years it's been pretty, pretty solid. Yeah. I think the package manager does a really good job with the, keeping the packages up to date. Yeah. Yeah. And also like yeah. there aren't random crashes when things updates because it, it's getting more tested. I think been a lot of work internally on Fedora CI and actually testing stuff having to have someone look at your app updates before we merge them from testing into updates and stuff like that. I think that has helped a lot. So what are your kind of mostly used uh, flat apps? Well, that's kind of, I mean, I think I mainly use Spotify because for me, Flatback tends to be in a weird state all the time because I do development on it. <laughs> Huh. Like I always have some test version installed, so it's some, sometimes a bit, it's a bit complicated to run stuff at the same time as you develop it. But yeah, I do run Spotify and, and some other of these, like, for instance, now I installed Zoom from the, from the from Hub in one command, and I never used it before, and it worked great. So Yeah, I'm also running Zoom. That, 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 kind of, that kind of use case, it's perfect, right? Yeah, Whereas, I think that's, that's amazing. We just yeah. want, it's like Docker, you two commands and then it's up and running. Yeah. Like I mean, but, but if it's something like really uh, like a development tool like Emacs, I, I, it makes more sense to use the, the distro version of it. And obviously the entire desktop, I mean, Flatpak is meant to package applications. It doesn't really work for, for larger, more system wide things like the desktop or core services. So. That that has to be all, but yeah. Has Bubble Wrap attracted any any larger applications to that want to port their applications to Bubble Wrap, or how has the kind of user adoption been with Bubble Wrap? I mean, I don't really see it. Sometimes people tell me they use it. I know Ansible is using it for some stuff, oh. and what else was there? Yeah, there's some company reached out. They're doing a, like a HTTP daemon that spawned top process using BRAP so they can protect what oh. I, I don't know exactly what kind of it is like CGI bin or whatever but using bubble wrap to isolate them uh, but yeah generally like people don't tell me that they use it it's just sometimes you find out that things use bubble wrap under the hood I know um, OS3 or RPM OS3 which is used for Fedora 
blue, the, the new Atomic Fedora based on RPM OS tree. Yeah. Uh, uses it for running package triggers and things like that in, in the container environments. So it's probably used in all sorts of ways as just internal things. And, you know, I don't know of it. Like people don't tell the maintainer of CH root that they're used there and using their app. It just happened. Oh, it would be, <laughs> that would be unusual. Like the creator of cat or something. Yeah. <laughs> or LS. I so. use your app. It's awesome. <laughs> I read this readme file. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. So uh, generally I don't get told unless there's an issue, obviously, right? If, if someone has a feature they want or a bug or they misunderstand something, then I see it. But I mean, I haven't seen a lot of those either. I mean, bubble wrap is kind of low level. So most of the people who end up using it are people that know stuff. So they rarely you know, file stupid bugs where they misunderstood everything. Is there but, any yeah. fun new features that you want to get into bubble wrap that you're currently working on? Mm. I mean, there's one thing I want to research, which is uh, using some kind of network filtering. Okay. In, um, so right now there's just, there's just, you can, you can use the host name network namespace, or you can create your own. And if you create your own, you basically only get a loopback mount, but nothing else. But it would be nice to have some kind of filtering, like a firewall or, or even just a NAT-like thing where you can connect anywhere, but nothing can connect to you. Yeah, that would Something be like that would be awesome. Yeah. But it's not quite possible in any sane way. But there's this insane project called Slurp or NS or something. Okay. Where they basically set up a Slurp. Do you, do you know what Slurp is? have to be old to know about that shit. It's like a serial IP. Back in the days, you used to dial with your modem into your ISP yeah. and set up a slurp connection or PPPD. Okay, right. It's yeah. similar to that. It's similar to PPPD, but, but it's serial. So the, it's basically that. And then you set up your, your na network namespace to connect to the slurp via like a fake serial device. And okay. then you can run the slurp daemon in, in user space and do all sorts of filtering there. Okay. It sounds insane, but, but I've seen some measurements and it actually got you like 10 gigabit in performance or something. Well, so so it's not as bad as it sounds. Yeah, people are using it for, I think Podman uses it for unprivileged network namespace or can use it. Hmm. Uh, um, so th this is something I need also I need to research, but it's something that if we could set that up easily, uh, I mean, it would require some changes to bubble wrap. Basically it has to get, I guess, a file descriptor or a device node or something for the fake serial device and set up a slurp connection to it in, in the, in the network namespace. And then, you know, you can do whatever you want in use space for the filtering. Yeah. I think slurp is essentially nat like in, in the default behavior like so so by default you get that kind of behavior where you can do connection wherever you want but people cannot connect to you so i think just having that yeah. is probably a good start and then on yeah. top of that if you could say only allowed this you know ip range or something that would also be cool i don't i don't know if that's as useful because it's hard to control what kind of ips you your app needs, but 
but you, you could maybe set it to only allow internal so internal IPs, for instance. Yeah, that, yeah, sounds like a pretty large project. Uh, I don't know. It's mostly about wiring up existing code and, and seeing if it actually does enough. I think the Slurp for NS thing might already have some kind of filtering. I don't really know. Slurp for and net NS. Yeah, so I think it's the QEMU Slurp code extracted into its own uh, into its own daemon, hmm. creates some like virtual VETH pairs, then you can connect one of them into your namespace and the other one can... Yeah, I don't really know how you have to route this thing on the host side. I guess you have to set up some routes to it or something, or how does that work? I don't know, but if they say if they set MTU to 64K, they got yeah. 9.2 gigabit per second out of this thing. So that's oh, wow. pretty okay. That's pretty good. Yeah, so that, that might that's be interesting. Good. Yeah. So is there anything with bubble wrap that we missed or anything you want to highlight? <laughs> uh, no, I think that's... I think it's and for people that right. want to check it out, is the GitHub repository is the best way? Yeah, to... it's on the, uh, on the uh, containers GitHub organization under Bubble Wrap project. And if you file an issue or a pull request or something, I'll get to it. Or awesome. some of the other people. We have some other people working on it too. It's awesome. mainly me and Colin Waters doing most of the maintenance. That's awesome. Do you have any other cool project that you're working on? I've been on the side doing this 3D graphics library called Z-Tree. It's, oh. it's really fun side project. It's basically a port of 3.js to C and Glib and GTK. So it's like a oh. fun way to do easy to do 3D stuff in your know, maps or whatever. Oh, that's, that's cool. Not necessarily super productive, but it's really fun. How far have you got them? Oh, I, most of the basic uh, 3.js demos work fine. And I like ordered a game and some other stuff. So oh, right. certainly, it's certainly, it's certainly useful. I mean, if there, if there are any particular APIs you need from 3.js, they might not be there, but most of them are. It's, it might actually sound uh, like more work than it is because I do have to port JavaScript code, but all the GPU code, all the shaders are the same. Mm. Like more than half of 3.js is GPU code that we can just use as is. So, oh, that's nice. and also like a bunch of the stuff that vector math and whatever, we already have libraries for that. So we can, we don't have to copy everything. Just, just the, just the 3D library APIs. Mm. That's, that's much more of a side project. I don't even, I don't even actually have a use case for it. It's just, it's a fun thing. Interesting to work on. That's awesome. So you're really into C. Is that your favorite programming language? It is my, the, the one that I'm most comfortable with. I wouldn't say it's my favorite one because it's just ancient and so easy to shoot yourself in the foot with. Absolutely. Uh, I wrote the uh, the backend for FlatHub, the server side in Rust, and I oh, really, really like that. That that's uh, if, if I were writing anything that that isn't already part of an ecosystem that has a pre-existing like language standard, then Rust is pretty good. Nice. I mean, obviously, I've also Very used nice. Python and all these other things that happen all the time as. as scripting and, and so 
So FlatHub is running Rust right now. Yeah. Well, the server side. Oh, is... oh cool. That's it's pretty cool because you, I mean, it's it's sometimes hard to describe what you're doing to Rust. Much more work than in C. But in the end, you get a much more reliable thing. So once you make it compile, it runs and keeps running. And that's what you want for server stuff, right? Absolutely. There, there, there are certain areas where Rust is not the greatest. Like sometimes you do explorative programming where you just like hack something up and see what works and do weird tweaks. And you're like basically aware that it's going to break if it happens to go the wrong way, but it's fine because you're just experimenting. And in that case, I find that Rust is some, like the pain point of Rust gets in way more than the worth of it because like I know what I'm doing is wrong, but I just want to test it and see how, how that looks or whatever. And then you have to make it perfect before you can even run it. And so, so sometimes that's a pain, but, but for, for production things, it's awesome. So the HTTP daemon is rough for FlatHub? Yeah. So there's two things. So that we have a web front end, yeah. like the flathub.org page that like, that's actually written by someone else in like Java and Angular and stuff. Okay. But this is about the 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 server that that serves the actual applications. Okay. Yeah. So so the thing you Flatpak itself talks to when it's downloading an update or things like that or listing what's on the what's available. So so it's so it's not the website. It's more like okay, yeah. server for the further repository backend. Yeah. Yeah, for, for the repository itself. Oh, okay. That's cool. That's awesome to see used in production like that. Mm -hmm. Well, it's getting are, more and more used in space. Was it was was Rust kind of? Did you test out Rust, or was Rust the perfect choice? To why did you pick Rust to run the, the FlatHub backend? Is it was it just oh, okay? Uh, this is a fun project to test out. Or? Yeah, I mean, I, I it was it was my first larger project in Rust. So it was so it was partially because it's fun and interesting, but also because I, uh, I, I mean, over the years I read a lot about it and I know what it's good for and what it's bad for. Or had an idea of what it's good and what bad, for, and it, and I knew it would be a good fit for it. So it, it was it was it was a fun way to learn about something new, but it it wasn't completely wrong. I mean, I I, I knew from the start that. If I managed to get it to work, it would be a good choice. So, I mean, yes, it was mostly to learn it, but also, it was it, I knew it was a good choice. Nice. It, I wasn't like p picking Haskell because I, <laughs> because a... it's the coolest thing, and I want to do functional uh, something. It, it was actually something that would be a good choice. That's that's awesome. And and you think you will stick with Rust and keep on working with it, or uh... yeah. Yeah, I think so. Nice. Uh, for, nice. for 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 a new project, there. I mean, for instance, in GNOME or GTK or the entire ecosystem around GNOME, it's just so much C that as soon as you touch something, you naturally work in C. Yeah. Either because either because there's already code in C, or because C is a great way to write bindable code that you can use from any language. 
So, I mean, we have a lot of stuff in, in GNOME that's written in Python or JavaScript or other kind of high-level languages. And it's just so much easier to consume C things yeah. than it is to find like a Rust library to Python or something. But that's happening more and more. No, it is. It is. Federico is really doing great cool. work on 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 using uh, Rust and libRSVG, and oh. that's pretty cool. So I think, basically, I think it's replacing the CSS engine now. But basically, it has all the so libRSVG is or SVG renderer, and it used to be entirely in C, and it's now entirely in Rust. And that's pretty cool. That's but awesome. the C but the C API is the same. Oh yeah, that's... So it exposes a C API, but everything behind it is Rust. Yeah. That's I mean, so that is that is one way you can do it, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Or of that's, course, then you cool. then you would have to write more C to use it. But I mean, I guess there is also a Rust API. I yeah. think that's the way it works. There's a Rust API, and then there's a layer that converts it to uh, the C API. Oh okay. You can use it from your Rust app without having to link to the C library because that would be kind of weird. Yeah. But yeah, that, that is, you know, I think GStreamer are looking at Rust a bit too for plugins and stuff. So there's oh. new, new uh, GStreamer plugins are sometimes written in nice. Rust. I mean, I guess that also makes sense because it's a very limited interface and it has to be fast and security sensitive. So. Rust is a good choice there. Yeah. And, 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 you know, I wouldn't cry if all our image loaders were converted to Rust either. I mean, libjpg and libpng and all those things. I mean, over the years, we have fixed most issues, I guess, but you, it would make me feel Happy. better if, if they were all in, in something that, that was a bit more secure. Yeah, I think, I think the future is... Uh... It's going to be very rust friendly and I'm yeah. super excited about that. So on that note, is there anything forgotten? So all the users that are interested, they should go to flathub.org and test it out. Yeah, I think so. And they should package their apps. I think that's more important. Yeah. If you, if, get if, more. if you are upstream of some app, you want to get closer to your users. And you will get closer to your users if you ship directly to them instead of via distribution. So Totally. So yeah, have it all there. So thank right. you so much for taking the time, Alex. Thank you. Where do people follow you or stalk you? I'm Gnome Alex on Twitter, and I have a blog on the Gnome blogs. Uh, where else? GitHub. Awesome. Maybe. Awesome. So yeah, that's all for this episode, I guess. All right. But, yeah. All right. Thank you, Alex. Take care. Have a good one. Thank you.